Today's scripture reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. That's Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, your word has power, and that means that what happens in the next moments in our lives as your word is declared has the potential to do astonishing things. And so we pray that you would use your word to that end, to that end and for that purpose. So now help us to clear away all other distractions in our minds, to realize that this moment is a providentially ordained moment in our lives, and give us soft hearts to receive your word, give us clear minds to understand it, and give us a readiness to obey in what you call us to do today. We want to be a people who live on mission, and so we pray that you would accomplish that through this text today. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. One of the common questions that I'm asked is this. Besides the Bible, what are the most influential books in your life. There are many books that have influenced me and shaped me. Among them, Biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones, Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul, The Reformed Pastor about shepherding written by a Puritan named Richard Baxter, The Disciplines of a Godly Man by R. Kent Hughes, and Desiring God by John Piper. These would be books that have shaped my understanding of the world, of marriage, of ministry, and I'm forever indebted to these books. However, when I look at my life and I think about who I am, I think your story would be similar to mine, that while these books were helpful, the real imprint on my life has been people. People who have shaped my life in significant and substantial ways. Among those would be my parents, whose walk with the Lord and how they modeled Christ-likeness has greatly informed how I understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It would be like my home church pastor named Will Davis, who gave me my first opportunity to preach at 18 years old, and I went way too long. (laughs) (laughs) Or Dr. Harold Green, vice president of Christian Ministries at Cedarville when I was a student there, who was a mentor and a disciple, and who, after meeting Sarah, said to me a year later, marry that young woman, she's a keeper. I agreed. Pastor John Street, who pastored a church in the Miami Valley, Valley, a place where I did an internship for an entire year, the man who did our premarital counseling, where the word of God came alive to me in a new way, A name that some of you have been around here for a while will be familiar with, Dr. Jim Greer, who was a mentor in seminary, who in the middle of classes on what the church was and is, I felt like instead of walking out of the class, I needed to crawl my way out. And 
We have a fresh encounter service, the prayer meeting here. That is in large part shaped by a relationship that I had with Daniel Henderson, who gave me a vision of what it means to lead people, not just in prayer, but in worship-based prayer. The older I get, the more I realize that books have an influence on my life, for sure, but the greater influence, I think, has come by virtue of the people whose lives have intersected with mine. You see, even some of the people who I listed were preachers, they were teachers of God's word, and yet I can't really remember hardly a sermon that either any of them really taught. What I do remember, though, is watching how they lived out their lives and the intersection of both their teaching and their life deeply affected me. My life bears the imprint of these people. I would consider them to be my disciples, and I would guess, no matter how long you've known the Lord, that you, could have, you have people in your life as well who've had some kind of impact on your trajectory in your walk with Christ. The basic mission for those who are the followers of Jesus on earth is to make disciples. And today I want to explore this final aspect of the ordinary Christian life, the calling of the Christian life, the ordinary calling of the Christian life, which is to make disciples. And I want to lay before you today a vision of what that could look like in your life as you disciple others or maybe as you find yourself needing to be discipled. In week one of our thing called The Ordinary Revolution, we looked at the beauty of ordinary through John 15, what it means to abide in Christ. We then looked at the context of, the or, of ordinary, what it means in Matthew 16 and 18 to see the church's role in the believer's life. Then last week we looked at the practice of the ordinary, looking at eight marks of the ordinary Christian life. And I hope that by now, you've been able to see some level of incremental progress in your life as you've maybe taken one of the challenges that we've suggested, heard about it from others in a small group that you've been discussing it, and my prayer is that now you'll begin to take that challenge and embed it into your life and continue to find ways in small and incremental scenarios to follow Jesus differently than you did in June, July of this year. Matthew 28 is somewhat of a familiar text. If you've been a part of the church for a while or you've heard any number of sermons, especially as it relates to missions, you've probably heard this text talked about. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you may have heard something called the Great Commission, which is the idea of going into all the world. And what's interesting is that after spending three years together, listening to Jesus' teaching, observing how he lived his life, performing, watching how he performed miracles, they saw his death, witnessed his resurrection, resurrected body. Jesus then gives this particular mission to his disciples. Can we read this together? Let's read it. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's what's called the Great Commission. The question, though, is how does the ordinary Christian life relate to that mission? Or is that mission just for foreign missions? Is that just for reaching unreached peoples? Is it just for those who are in full-time ministry? Does that text just relate to pastors? Today I wanna to help you understand this text by answering three questions. First, who is Jesus calling to this mission? Secondly, what exactly is this mission? 
And third, what does it look like to fulfill this mission? So who is Jesus calling, what is this mission, and how is it fulfilled, or what does it look like? So the first thing is this, who is Jesus calling? And the simple answer is this, he's calling all of us, even in our brokenness. Look at verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. There's 11, not 12. The reason is is that Judas has betrayed Jesus, he took his own life, and so we're down to 11 disciples. They go to Galilee, where many of them hailed from, where where Jesus' ministry really started, and they go to a, a mountain where Jesus had instructed them to go. Apparently, Jesus had told them where they ought to go after his resurrection, and so they gather there. And mountains in biblical um, history and in the Gospels are, uh, is a place, a location, where uh, w- people hear from God or important messages are delivered. Verse 17 is especially important. It says this, so they go to this mountain, and when they saw him, They worshiped him, but some doubted. Matthew has an agenda with that. I mean, he could have written anything. He could have left that particular point out. He could have sort of varnished over this reality, and yet what he tells us is that Jesus appears, and in the midst of Jesus appearing to his disciples, there were some who worshiped him and some who doubted. Now, it either means that the entire group was worshiping and doubting, or there were some who were worshiping and some who were doubting. We're not sure exactly what Matthew has in mind here, but what is clear is this. These 11 followers of Jesus are still humans. They're still weak, they're still struggling, They're still very much in process with what they are encountering with Jesus. And think of it, despite all that they had seen and heard, despite all that they had experienced, despite meeting the resurrected Christ, they're worshiping and yet they are also still doubting. Or or maybe a better way to say it, even in their doubt, they were still worshiping. It's very clear here that these humans are disciples, and these disciples are human. So before we say anything about the mission that Jesus entrusts to them, and and it's a very compelling mission, I think it's worth noting that the people to whom Jesus entrusted this very compelling global mission are very ordinary people. We know, for instance, that Peter, James, and John, they were fishermen. It's likely also that two or three others were, at a minimum, tradesmen or also fishermen. Matthew was a converted tax collector. He had a scandalous background. And Simon, oh, he was a fighter. He was a zealot. He was an insurrectionist, wanted to overthrow Rome with military might. And they did not come from the halls of power. They didn't come from the highly educated or the spiritual class of people. No, these disciples were ordinary men. In fact, so much so that when they speak with authority and when they say things that are really impressive, uh, people who are in the upper echelons are really astonished. Acts chapter four tells us that one day they were, Peter and John were hauled before the Sanhedrin and the text in Acts four says, and they perceived that they were uneducated, common, read that, ordinary men, and they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. One of the things I love about these ordinary disciples is that their power doesn't come from who they are or what they've learned or where they've come from. Their power comes from Jesus, who they hung out with. Does it encourage you that the disciples are ordinary men? It should. 
In a few verses, we're gonna hear about Jesus' all-encompassing, global, and compelling mission. The power of what Jesus is gonna say in a moment is stunning, and yet the people to whom he entrusts this mission are extremely common. They're imperfect, they struggle, they're weak in their faith at times. In fact, one commentator says this, Christians are both believers and doubters. That really helps me. Because you know there's times that I read the Bible and I'm like, man, that's true. Is it? There's times that I pray and I'm like, I, I'm, I know you hear me. Do you? I know I can bank my life on you. Can I? I resonate with the man in the Bible who says, I believe, help my unbelief. <laughs> Christians are both believers and doubters. They are both those who adore and those who wonder, those who trust and those who question. And the commentator says this, is it not refreshing that Matthew admits this? And my answer is, yes, it is. Wonderfully refreshing. Jesus' disciples have always been ordinary people who are always in process, who have been entrusted with an extraordinary mission. So my first question to you is this, do you see yourself through this lens? Do you see that God has entrusted something to ordinary Christians? Because there are often some barriers that we face. Let me give you just a few. For instance, there's the, the barrier in seeing yourself this way. The barrier, number one, would be the barrier of insecurity. Many believers fail to live on mission, on Christ's mission, because they feel inadequate to the calling that Jesus gives them. And maybe you're one of those people. You don't feel like you have enough answers. You're worried. What if, my, what if my kids ask me a question about the Bible that I don't know? Or what if I share Christ with someone and they, they ask me something that I can't answer? Or I don't have the sufficient faith. I'm not, I'm not spiritually strong enough. Or maybe you think, I just came to Christ recently. I can't like go and make disciples. Or I'm not as gifted as other people. Secondly, not only insecurity, but misunderstanding. Some of some people I encounter have a wrong view of how God's gonna accomplish his mission on the earth. They think that it's the job of professionals or church programs or the church itself to accomplish God's mission on the earth. They don't realize the important role they're gonna have to play. Insecurity, misunderstanding, there's also distractions. Another barrier is this. Other believers allow so many things into their lives. It's not that they're against the Great Commission. It's just that they have so many other big rocks in their life that there's no place for God's mission in their life. And they fail to see the beauty of the gospel in the way that ordinary people are called to express it in ordinary callings. And it may be today, you've never connected the fact that God gave you the gifts and where you've, he's placed you in your career, in your life, in your neighborhood. He's placed you right where you are because he wants you to accomplish the Great Commission right where you live. And that may be a new thought. And then there's others of you who that's not a new thought, you know it. In fact, you know it, and you see people around you, and there's something in your soul that says, you know, I ought to be reaching out to that person, or I ought to take that person under my wing. I ought to be able to pour into them. And your issue is not distraction, it's not misunderstanding, it's not insecurity. Let's just be honest. What it is, it's straight up disobedience. You just don't want to do it because your heart, for whatever reason, has begun to grow hard. And you know what you need? You need an ordinary word in the Bible. And that ordinary word is repentance. It means that you decide, God helping you, that's wrong. And God helping me, 
I'm gonna turn from it. And I hope that for some of you, today is a day of, of repentance to say, God, I've been AWOL as it relates to this discipleship mission, maybe with your kids, maybe with grandkids, maybe with someone who's near you, a coworker, they're right in front of me, and forgive me, I've not embraced it as a part of my mission. Now in a moment, we're gonna look at the scope and the breadth of this calling, but I wanna suggest to you before we even get into it, that this calling is a calling that every single follower of Jesus has upon his or her life. It's a beautiful story that Christianity started with 11 broken men on a mountain, and from those 11 men, it spread all over the world. So God's on a mission to reach the world. So secondly then, so what exactly is this mission? What is our mission? We find it in verses 18 to 20. Again, many of you are used to hearing this, these verses in the context about foreign missions. And let me be clear, this text clearly speaks about foreign missions. Certainly applies to that. However, although our mission globally is extremely important, that it is only one application of this particular text. So I wanna try and maybe expand your understanding of the application of this great commission. There's some characteristics related to this mission. What are they? First, there's six of these. First, this mission is rooted in the authority of Jesus. Jesus starts with some unbelievable words in verse 18. And Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a huge statement. In Matthew, authority is connected to the lordship of Christ. That's how Matthew uses authority. He uses authority to describe that Jesus is to be distinguished from other religious leaders. In Matthew chapter seven, Jesus is teaching and the people say, he teaches as one who has authority and not as the scribes. Which must have been an awkward thing if you were a scribe hearing that, right? Like, what? Authority is how Jesus is able to forgive and heal. Authority is what he gives to the disciples in Matthew chapter 10, to go out and to heal and to preach the good news. Authority is essentially what made him a credible teacher, according to Matthew 21. So for Matthew, the authority of Jesus is connected to the lordship of Christ. It's similar as to what Paul says in Philippians chapter two, by virtue of his death and resurrection, that the Father has now given Jesus a name, a name that is above every name. And the Bible tells us in Philippians two that one day will, when Jesus comes, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That's what it means. It means that Christ, by virtue of his resurrection, has fulfilled the prophecy in Isaiah chapter nine, which says that the government shall rest upon his shoulders, that Christ now has all possession of all things on earth, that there's nothing that can escape his power and his authority. Or as Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not one square inch on planet Earth over which the risen Christ does not say, mine. All authority, Jesus says, has been given to me, so therefore what? It's now a movement. So in light of this authority, the next word, therefore, go. The mission of Jesus is a movement. 
They are not to stay on that mountain. They're not to have a small group on that mountain. They're not to set up a Sunday school on that mountain. Don't put up tents, don't gather on this mountain. The idea is don't stay here, spread, reach, move, go, grow. In other words, when it comes to Christian life, when it comes to this mission, there's a tilt as it relates to who the followers of Jesus are. There is a posture, there is a bias, and that bias is towards spreading, that bias is towards going, that, that, that posture is towards going towards people for the purpose of gospel activity. Sometimes that going involves leaving your country and your extended family. And some of you ought to pray about that and consider, is God calling me to go, to leave? Sometimes that involves leaving family and learning another language, another culture. But the call to go is not just for missionaries. The central idea is this, that the followers of Jesus, they don't just gather. They gather in order to scatter. They gather together in order to be spread out into the world. It means that the central ministry of the followers of Jesus is not just caring for one another on a Sunday or meeting together in their small groups or fellowshipping together in the context of a Sunday morning gathering, but rather the, the chief characteristic and the central ministry that they're engaged in is their movement as they're spreading and they gather in order to be encouraged and exhorted and taught in order so they can scatter again. And so, as it relates, for instance, to athletics, is this. Is this the practice or is this the game? This is the practice. This is the, this is the mash tent. This is the recovery zone. This is the sideline. And out there, that's where the game is. And sometimes, over time, people begin to think, no, 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 like this is, the, this is the sum total of what Christianity is. This is not the sum total of what Christianity is. The sum total of Christianity is you in your homes discipling your children. It's you in your workplace speaking words of grace and gospel-oriented conversations. It's you caring for people around you. It's you living out the reality of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's you going and spreading. You gather and then you leave. You get together and then you go out. You meet together and pray together and you go out all for the purpose of taking the name of Jesus wherever you go, wherever you are. That's the purpose. That's the point. But how easy it is to forget that begin to create our little Christian ghettos with our Christian language and our Christian culture and our Christian books and our Christian gatherings and our Christian little buildings and we begin to begin to think that's the essence of the ministry. Sunday morning is not the essence of what God has called us to. It's part of the essence. The essence is to be spread out into the world. Now what's the goal? The goal essentially is disciple making. So what are we to do? He says, go and make disciples. Notice he doesn't use words like go and convert, go and preach, go and win. All those are certainly a part of that, but he uses another word, a word that's more organic, more slowly developed, more personal for them, because after all, they are his disciples. And his command then is for them to make disciples. So what do we mean exactly by discipleship? You know, that's a hard word to define. It's a loaded term. And many of us have baggage connected with that term. Uh, for instance, there's some of you who think of discipleship, you immediately think that discipleship is something institutional, that there's discipleship classes and discipleship books and discipleship meetings. 
And so that discipleship is just something what you do. It's a system that you're in, a program that you're in. And at one level, discipleship is that. On the other hand, there are those of you who have experienced discipleship maybe when you were a new believer or maybe in college and you got together with a bunch of your friends and you started studying the Bible and you built into one of those lives and you were like gut level honest with them and you saw Christ in the midst of that. And for you, discipleship is, it's not about programs at all. all. In fact, what it really is about is, is something relational and something experiential. And I wanna suggest to you that's glorious and beautiful, but that's not all that discipleship is. It's not just that. A discipleship is more than just you with your friends learning and growing together. It's, it's more than just spiritual mentoring and coaching. People are certainly discipled in classes and they're discipled in highly relational settings. But what is Jesus saying here? I think the, the challenge of this text is not to make it more complicated than what Jesus makes. He doesn't give us a long list doesn't describe it, he just simply says make disciples, which I think what he's saying is this, what I've done to you, do that to other people. I think it's that simple. What you saw me do to you, I taught you, I lived with you, I worked with you, I exhorted you, I encouraged you, I got in your grill sometimes, he didn't say it that way, but I got, I I rebuked you, I did all of these things, I want you to do that to other people. What I have done to you, do to others. So here's my very simple definition of discipleship, it's this, intentional spiritual replication. It's probably not sufficient. You make it better. And then you try and do this, all right? So intentional, spiritual, I said that with a great deal of love in my heart for you. Intentional, <laughs> intentional, spiritual replication. What do I mean by that? I mean there's a lean, there's a posture, there's a point to what you're doing. You're not just kind of flowing around in life. You're like, look, I'm on mission, spiritual. It's not just you're just not coaching people to be a better leader. You're helping them to be a follower of Jesus. And replication means you are reproducing yourself in the lives of other people. Now what exactly does discipleship mean? What are the components of it? Well, we, we have two participles in the text. Make disciples is the verb, and then the first participle is baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's one aspect. And then secondly, teaching them to observe. So I think that discipleship then is evangelism and obedience-oriented instruction. Whether it's in the context of a relationship, whether it's in the context of a class, doesn't matter. At the end of the day, discipleship involves at least two ingredients. The person becomes a follower of Jesus, they've been evangelized, and they are receiving instruction that is resulting in obedience, obedience-oriented instruction. What are these two participles about? Well, he says, first, disciples are made as they're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In context here, to be baptized in the name of Jesus means that you've come to faith in Jesus. Jesus is not suggesting that this baptism in and of itself saves the person, but what he is saying, as Peter does, that baptism going public with your relationship with Christ is a very clear indication that regeneration or becoming a Christian has actually happened in your life. That's why Peter, in Acts 2, after preaching a great sermon at Pentecost and people are saying to him, what must I do to be saved, Peter's response is repent and be baptized. So making disciples first and foremost means that a person trusts Christ as his savior or her savior and becomes a follower of Jesus. So if you're not a follower of Jesus today, you can't be a disciple. And the first step, 
would be to become a follower of Jesus by receiving Christ as your savior. Parents, as you look to disciple your children, the first task is evangelism. They, they are not able to fully obey until their hearts have been regenerated. So your home needs to be a disciple-making venue where first and foremost, you're calling and inviting, not pressing, but laying the gospel before them in the hopes that they might come to faith in Christ. If you're a youth leader, be sure that the children, the teenagers that you're trying to disciple understand the gospel, because you can't disciple someone who doesn't really know what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You have to start with what it means to have gone public. So maybe you ask, small group if you're mentoring some young people or people even in your own small group. So when have you gone public with your relationship with Christ and see what answer you get? What exactly is the gospel? Test that and see, do they understand? Have they received the gospel? Secondly, it also involves obedience-oriented instruction. He says, teaching them to observe. I use obedience-oriented instruction because just to know a truth is not true discipleship. It's not just that you know the truth, it's that you are teaching them to observe, which means you teach them in order so that they might obey. This is why a home is ground zero for discipleship, because there's no better place to be able to teach and observe. That's why the home that you create if you're married and you have kids is like the best place to see what discipleship is all about. That's why some of you are struggling even today with Christianity because your home was so dysfunctional. People said they believed one thing, but they didn't do it. And so my challenge to you, if that was the kind of home that you were raised in, you make sure that never happens again in your lifetime. If you're a single adult, it means that the challenge is not just to engage with friends and talk about truth, it's to live it out. Not just to talk about one thing in your small group and then go do something totally contrary on Friday night together. It means we're gonna teach to observe. It also means that you, you may be a, a really immature believer in Christ, struggling with sin patterns. And if you're struggling, like, man, I'm really struggling to follow Jesus, you know what you need? You need another brother in your life who can speak into your life, not only to teach you, but also to teach you to observe. You need the connection between not only what you know, but also what you do. Fifth, the aim of this mission is to saturate the world. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So the mission of God, therefore, is no longer to be limited with the Jewish people, but now to be extended beyond Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so the, the vision is that the gospel would saturate the earth, looking forward to the day when Jesus comes and the knowledge of the glory of God, says Habakkuk, will fill the earth like the water covers the sea. And until that happens, our role is to make disciples everywhere and everywhere we go to make disciples. And so my question to you would be, how, how is that going in your life? Have you brought discipleship into where you are? Are there people who would have you on their list? If I put someone up, would they say, the five more, most influential people in my life have been, would you be on anyone's list? We're called to make disciples everywhere and everywhere we go to make disciples. So get this image in your head. When we were thinking of doing the Fishers Campus, we plotted where all of us as a church lived. And this is the plot all over the city of Indianapolis. And I want you to think of this not just as a campus planting strategy, but think of this as a city-wide saturation strategy. 
That means that when we leave this place, you go out into this city, and there is no better way to reach this city than by what's represented on those dots. Meaning that everywhere you go in the next week, you're bringing the name of Jesus with you, and there are people in your world that I will never meet, our elders will never meet, other people in this church will never meet, but you know them, and you can speak the gospel to them. There are people who want to be discipled and want to grow in the knowledge of who and what Jesus is, and you have a relational context. They're in proximity to you, and you aren't just there so that you can know them. You're there to help them and encourage them in their walk with Jesus. And my question is, do you see the city like that? Do you see the people around you like that? Do you see your neighbors like that? Your your perspective on this really matters. Do you think that the Great Commission is just something that, that missionaries do overseas, or are you going to see it like in an hour where you eat, and tomorrow, how you engage with the people who are close to you, coworkers at work who are trying to follow Jesus, kids who need to be mentored in their walk with Christ, the kind of conversations you have on Wednesday night with children in Awana, or in the context of youth ministry sort of conversations, do you see that you are integral to God's mission to reach the world to raise up more disciples? I was talking to a Christian leader this week. We were discussing the challenges of living in a post-Christian culture. We were talking about post-Christian culture, post-Christian culture. And he said, you know, I had someone challenge me on that, word, that wording the other day. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, instead of saying that we're living in a post-Christian culture, this other pastor challenged me to say, you know what? Actually, we live in a pre-Christian culture. And I like that. That's helpful. It changes my mindset whether or not I'm mourning the loss or I'm looking forward to the saturation. And I wanna encourage you to think about yourself as being engaged in the movement of a pre-Christian culture. And then six, that involves the personal presence of Jesus. He offers this promise to them, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. (laughs) Sometimes this statement can be treated a bit like a sunset in a missionary presentation and they all live happily ever after. Or the credits on a movie. But this statement is not just about comfort. It is about comfort. It's about the fact that God has given to us the, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the personal presence of Christ mediated to us as his disciples through the Holy Spirit as they scatter out in the world that we never need to wonder in any moment, are you here with me? Somebody asks you a question about if you're a believer in Jesus, God is with you in that very moment. I was with some friends over the last week and one of their sons is a Marine and he's just completed boot camp. It's a hard place to be a follower of Jesus. And he said his sergeant pulled him over. His last name is Hurtklotz. Sounds like a Marine, doesn't it? He said, Hurtklotz, come over here. And he said, yes, sir. And he said, you're a religious man, aren't you? He said, I am. Tell me what you believe. Right there in front of a couple of sergeants, tell me what you believe. Yes, sir. And so he went, and you need to know, in the middle of that moment on some marine base around this country, Jesus with, was with a private named Hurtklotz as he shared the gospel. Jesus was right there, and you need to know he's right there with you. Or as you're discipling someone and they ask you a question, hey, how do you do such and such? And you're like, I don't know. Jesus is right there. It also means that when you're talking about the gospel, when you're opening the word, and you're helping someone to grow spiritually, Jesus is right there. If discipleship is spiritual replication, then our aim is to replicate them into something. And what is that something? Oh, it is that they might look and act like Jesus. 
So when you think about Christianity, do you see it in light of this mission? Do you see it as something rooted in the authority of Jesus, something that's a movement, something with a goal to make disciples through evangelism and obedience-oriented teaching? Do you see it as something engaging in the personal presence of Jesus? And what's more, do you see that as the ordinary calling for all of us to be engaged in? Do you see it as a divinely given strategy for accomplishing Jesus' mission on earth? When I read this text and I think, what's an ordinary Christian supposed to do? This is what ordinary Christians do. It started with 11 of them. Broken, doubting, fearful, and they heard, everything belongs to me, so go and do what I've done to you and do it everywhere. And those 11 men, it changed the world. And I just want you to join that mission. So what exactly does this mission look like? Let's put some handles on it. My aim this morning is to help you see that this relates to the ordinary Christian life. And my calling is for you to replicate yourself. And for some of you, that's a problem. Because I'm assuming that there's something to replicate. Meaning, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, this mission doesn't apply to you today. I hope that it will, and I hope that it will soon. But let me be very clear, I don't want you to replicate yourself. In fact, you don't want to replicate yourself. The sins in your life, the stronghold that the enemy has, you, you, don't, you don't want to give that to your kids. You don't, you don't want the legacy to be that it happened over and over and over and over. The reality is, my guess is you want to change and the fact of the matter is, is that doesn't happen unless you come to the realization that you can't do it. And yet there's someone, according to the Bible, who can. His name is Jesus, and what happens is he comes when you admit your sin, you turn from your own ways, and you receive Christ. He comes, he changes the one thing you could never change, which is your heart, and then suddenly you begin to see the beauty of the way in which Christ has taken over your life, and you see the joy of what it means to really change, and you look at your own life, and you're like, oh my word, something's happening inside of me, and that's what you want to replicate, and to pass it on to your children and your friends, because suddenly you want them to experience the beauty of what you has happened to you. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, and you wonder, is he talking to me? Yes, I'm talking to you because I want you to change, I want you to come to Jesus, and I want your life to count and not be filled with all kinds of sin and things that are dragging you down. Instead, I want you to be free, and then I want you to pour your life out for the glory of Jesus in the lives of others so you can share that freedom with other people. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and I hope you come today. I hope you come to Christ today. Assuming you know Christ, what is discipleship then? Let me give you some categories. I'm gonna keep using the word both because discipleship is both at so many levels. So what is discipleship? Discipleship is both corporate and personal. When we gather together, when we sing together, when we learn together in a corporate setting like this, when we worship together, we spend time around the word together, you need to know what's happening in this room, in this moment, is discipleship, right now. 
In a corporate setting, as we rehearse the truths of God, when we celebrate the gospel, as we give, as we listen and learn, we are engaging in the process of disciple making. And what happens is the Holy Spirit uses the official and large-scale gathering of the church for discipleship. Absolutely, this is discipleship. But that's not all it is. It's corporate, but it's also personal. Discipleship is very personal and individually oriented, which is why Paul said in Colossians 1.28, our aim is to present everyone mature in Christ. So discipleship happens then as the corporate body of Christ gathers, and then in the context of that corporate gathering, there are personal interactions. There are conversations, there's one-on-one times, there's how we care for one another, and discipleship not only happens in a corporate context, but it happens as we have relationships with one another. So here's the deal, you, you will not be discipled unless you come. One of the fastest ways to derail discipleship is this, just simply be away from this gathering of people for about six weeks in a row, and you will notice your passion for the gospel and your commitment to discipleship will begin to diminish very, very quickly. But here's the other deal. It's not just enough to show up. You gotta come and be ready to engage in other people's lives and have relationships with other people in the context of this gathering. So it's not enough just to come and go to an ABF class and sit there and receive truth and hear good teaching from a Sunday school teacher and you don't know anybody in the classroom. There's something wrong with that. Like the church exists just to impart truth. The church exists to impart truth and people to engage in, in, in conversations with one another. If your small group just exists to have a good discussion about what's going on um, in terms of a book study or what's happening, how, what you thought of the sermon, some sort of thing like that, that's, that's good at one level, but if there's no relational depth that's happening, something is seriously wrong. And so we gotta work hard to be sure that we understand that discipleship is both a corporate thing and a personal thing. Secondly, it's structural and it's relational. One of my favorite books on the subject of discipleship is a book that uses an analogy of the trellis and the vine. So the vine is an organic entity, like discipleship, and yet it needs the trellis. The the lifeblood of discipleship is relationships. People make disciples, but the structure of programs and resources and events, it creates the context for those relationships to happen. The key is not to limit discipleship to one or the other. To think, oh, it's all about the program or it's all about the relationships. No, it's both. So if you want to be discipled, step one, become a member of this church. Step two, become a member of a small group. Come on Sunday mornings, use these structures that are in place, and then build relationships with people who are around you. Some of you, you sit in the same place every single Sunday. I know, I see you. <laughs> Jermaine, you sit there every single Sunday. Right? I'm glad, take attendance on you. Right? And I know where you sit, I see when you leave, I, I see when you sleep, I see it all from up here. <laughs> and I love you anyways, right? But what you'll find out is there's some West Coast Christians over here who don't know the folks on the East Coast. Right? And there's some back row Baptists who don't know about the spiritual people up front. I mean, I'm just saying. So, and what I'm suggesting is maybe every once in a while you switch spots and you show up and you're like, hey, we're in the same church. I don't even know you. Like I'm on the other side of the world from you. And when you walk out this morning that you're engaging with one another and you're having conversations that you're not just thinking, get the kids from the nursery, pick them up from Sunday school, get in the car, get our lunch, and let's go home and get a nap. Don't think of that. Instead, I want to come and I want to hang out with people and find relationships and be connected 
And you may have tried and it may have failed, and I would just tell you, brother, sister, you keep trying and don't give up. There's a few nice people in the church and I hope you find them. <laughs> Discipleship is also formal and informal. Making disciples can be a formal relationship, like a one-on-one -on -one discipleship relationship or a mentor. And there's some of you, you need to find a mentor. Find somebody, ask him, look, you look like a godly man, or are you? <laughs> can, 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 can we spend time together? I'll buy you coffee, what time? Name it, I'll be there. Some of you who are senior in your relationship with Christ, you're, um, you're not old, you're just experienced. <laughs> and, my encouragement to you would be this, don't waste the years that God has invested in you. Young men and young women need you, and don't sell yourself short to think, yeah, my life's full of really bad stuff. Well, then help somebody not to repeat it. There's formal, there's informal. It can be you set up a meeting, you have some conversations. It could also mean something as informal as you're driving home after a ball game with your teenager, you start asking some really Quite good questions. Or you're, you're reading, you share with someone while you're on a run, a 5K run with them, and you share what you're reading in God's word. It can look like stopping and praying with someone after a service who looks like they're hurting and struggling. You're here, well done. But that's not enough. As a dad, I have found it helpful that I have regular scheduled breakfast with my kids. It's on my calendar. We meet, it's amazing what kids will talk about over some eggs. <laughs> And then I also have informal conversations, but I need both in my life. And then finally, discipleship is not only formal and informal, it's also global and local. So making disciples is the fuel behind global missions. Unreached people groups will never hear about the gospel unless followers of Jesus go. Reaching the nations is the end game of our mission. But so is reaching your neighbor. So is reaching your kids. So is reaching your coworker, the barista at Starbucks, the guy at the gym, or anybody who lives in proximity in your life. Why has he placed you in the neighborhood that you're in? Why did he cause you to cross paths with that person last week? Why has this particular sin issue in this person's life surfaced in your small group? Why did God give you the teenager that's in your home? Why did you have that great conversation with someone at a wedding last week? Why are you sitting next to the very person that you are in this room? All of these questions relate to the beautiful plan of God to reach the world. His mission is to save people from their sins and to make them into the beautiful and compelling likeness of Jesus. God's on the move. He's wooing people to himself. He's changing them. This is a glorious and beautiful mission and one that he entrusts to ordinary people. He gathered 11 ordinary men on a mountain and he told them, Get out of here. Go. Do what I've done to you. Go. Go everywhere around, anywhere who will listen. Go and make disciples. And the revolution of the gospel is that it spreads through ordinary people who have met and encountered Jesus. Disciple making is the ordinary revolution of our calling. It's the revolution of the gospel. 
to make disciples is still our calling. It's an ordinary calling with an extraordinary mission that I want you to be a part of for God's glory and for the exaltation of Christ's name. Let's pray. Father, help us. Convict us. Encourage us with the beauty of your word, the power of the mission that is in front of us, and the opportunity that we have to truly be salt and light in the world. Help us, Father, to be the kind of folks who carry this message and this mantra with joy and with power. And thank you that to ordinary people you've given an extraordinary calling. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.